I'm going to read it one more time. And I want to see if something you hold on to, is there some phrase, some word that you feel like you want to hold on to and just hold that before the throne this morning? I gathered you from one end of the earth to the other. From the Father's places on earth, I brought you together. I said, you are my servants. I have chosen you. I have not turned my back on you. So do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be terrified. I am your God. I will make you strong and help you. My powerful right hand will take good care of you. And I always do what is right. I'm going to read it one more time and uh, pray it back to God in the way that makes sense to you. Uh, respond to what God may be saying to you. Do you realize that you need help in some way? Is there something you fear that's causing anxiety? Is there someone else that you think needs God's help right now? Uh, are you overwhelmed by a feeling or an emotion? Just lay yourself before God with all those emotions that are there. And uh, if you're filled with gratitude, just pray Thank you. I gathered from you one end of the earth to the other. From the farthest places on earth, I brought you together. I said, you are my servants, and I have chosen you. I have not turned my back on you. So do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be terrified. I am your God. I will make you strong and help you. My powerful right hand will take good care of you. I always do what is right. Lord, we ask that the fire of heaven touch our lips this morning, that you transform our judgments into prayers of intercession, that you transform our gossip into encouragement, that you transform our self-pity into praise, that you transform our worries into gratitude. Lord, help us to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help us to give ourselves away to others, being kind to everyone we meet. And Spirit, help us to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all that we say and do. Amen. We are continuing with Isaiah this week. Two more messages today and next week. And we will finish up next week uh, the book of Isaiah. Or not the whole book, obviously. We just took general topics and themes. Um, but uh, it's, I hope you have an appreciation for the prophets in general and uh, for Isaiah specifically. Uh, we all know how eclipses work. We know what an eclipse is. Uh, Sue and Katie and I saw our first total eclipse back in, 
1990 or 91 in Costa Rica. We were living in Costa Rica. I even had a friend from Dallas come down and see us because he wanted to witness, well, to see us, but he also wanted to witness the, uh, the total eclipse. And we all know how those things work. Uh, we know that there, it works because of an object that moves between us and another object that blocks our vision, that blocks our view of it. We cannot see the light because there's another object that moves in front of it. And in a solar eclipse, of course, we know that's the moon that moves in front of the sun, and we cannot see it. And, uh, it, and before the scientists started predicting them, they would catch us by surprise, and they still catch animals by surprise. I remember in Costa Rica, the birds would kind of thought that it was time to go to bed, and they kind of just shut up, and they just, it was just this weird reaction of the birds there. Uh, but it suddenly got dark for no reason. Uh, but we know that, that's, that, that what that is, that there is this gradual dimming of the light, and then finally it just goes completely dark, completely black. And, uh, but we also know that it's temporary. We know that it's not going to last. And uh, that kind of helps us sort of reorient ourselves if we have to be reoriented, that uh, it will pass. In fact, we find that we kind of kind of fascinating. Well, on a spiritual level, we have a lot of ways that things are dark. And sometimes they're actually good. I mean, we go to bed at night, and that's a good time of darkness. But we also have these times of eclipse where there are things that seem to obstruct our view of the light. They seem to block our view. There's something between us, between us and the object we want to see. And uh, that can be our own sin and rebellion. It can be uh, willful, willful ignorance. Uh, it could be hatred. Uh, it could be uh, illness. It could be a depression. It could be a loss. But something happens in our lives that, that block that view that we cannot see, and we start to lose our bearings. The things that we take for granted, the things that are familiar, we don't see anymore. We cannot see. And so we start to kind of maybe even lose who we are or where we are, and it throws us off kilter. And there could be any number of things. We can't see it. But one of the things we know about an eclipse is that it's temporary, and regardless of how pitch black it gets and how dark it gets and how deep the shadow becomes, we know that it's temporary. And knowing that helps us sort of understand how to linger there for a while and, and maybe even savor the darkness for a while, even though it's, it's painful, but because we know that the light is coming. We know that it is temporary. We know that the resurrection is afoot. Uh, we know that the transformation is unfolding right before us. We know that God is going to break through and know that it's temporary. And that seems to help us. That's exactly what Isaiah 60 uh, does, uh, 60 verses 1 through 9. It, it describes a darkness, but it's temporary. It's an eclipse. There's something that is blocking their vision. And he, uh, he starts off describing this darkness in the first three verses, but there's a contrast there that this is only temporary. This will pass, and we will be able to see again, and that we don't have to lose our bearings completely, that we have that strong foundation. And that's kind of what Isaiah 60 is all about. And he's calling Israel to perceive that and then to participate in it, to perceive the glorious works of God, but at the same time participate in the glorious works of God. Uh, what I want to do this morning is look at the poem in chapter 60, verses 1 through 9. It's, it's a prophetic word. It's a vision. And, uh, and it doesn't like follow Paul where it's go 1, 2, 3, 4, and you have this, this, you know, the way my mind works, I like 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, like a cause and effect, that kind of thing. It's a poem, and it's a vision. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this vision and how it appeared to the people of Israel at the time, and then want to look at what, it see, what the New Testament says about it, and then we will look at 
what that vision does to us and what that vision does for us. So we're going to look at the poem that, that um, the vision that um, Ronnie just read. And uh, I've kind of titled this, Lift Your Eyes Up and Look Around. And we'll get to that in a minute. It starts off in verses 1 through 3. And I know uh, these days, I'm putting this up on the screen because... Um, uh, I remember the days when we all brought Bibles, right? And we, you know, turned to this and we'd all look at it. I know we are all electronic now, and so we look at the screen. So I'm going to put it up on the screen just to draw our attention to a few things. In these first three verses, we have this, this incredible contrast. And he's saying that the darkness, yes, is temporary, but God's grace is permanent. God's, grace, God's promise of his grace is permanent. And he gives us this cause and effect. And it starts off with this darkness. He says in verse 2, it says, The darkness is covering the earth. And then he uses another word for darkness that covers the people. He says, the darkness covers the earth and the thick darkness covers the people. Two different words here. And I think he's trying to draw a point here that, yes, there's this, there's this overall overcast shadow that kind of covers the earth, but then there's a really thick, dense darkness, a deeper darkness that's covering the people. Now, we don't really know what that is. The prophet doesn't tell us exactly what that darkness is, what that object is that's blocking our view of the light. He doesn't tell. It could be Israel's sin. It could be the rebellion. But from the tone I'm getting from the vision here, I'm beginning, I think it's more this feeling of despair and devastation and depression, this, this feeling of, of, of there's nowhere else to turn. This is happening. What he's describing is that, that this is after the captivity and Babylon came to the southern kingdom of Judah and carried off and conquered the kingdom and carried off a lot of people, the best and the brightest, to Babylonia, uh, Daniel being one of those people. Well, now when Persia had, had conquered Babylon, they, let, they were letting people go back to their homelands, including the Jews. And so they go back, and what do they find? They find crumbling buildings. They find devastation. They find uh, a people there with um, that... Um, that are completely devastated. They find uh, corrupt authorities and incompetent leaders and people who are apathetic and everything is just a mess. It's just devastation. And I get the feeling that there's this dark despair over them that's blocking them and that they cannot see the light. And it's darkness that covers the world, but it's even darker on the people. It's a heavy feeling, a heavy heart that they cannot see, which is what we get into sometimes. And he says, we cannot see the light. But then he has this really incongruent sort of promise. He says, but arise and shine. He says, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And they're looking at all these, these buildings that are abandoned and crumbling. And they're going, yeah, right. The glory is upon us. Doesn't look like it to me. And he's saying, he's, he's saying get out of bed. Look at the sun. It's shining. The sun is rising even though you cannot see it. And he says, the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. And that word glory is really an interesting word. It, it appears in the Old Testament like over 400 times. It kind of literally means heavy, but when it's applied to God, it's kind of this idea of, of this great, powerful God, but also describes his goodness, his beauty, and his truth, and his grace. It describes all that and describes it in a way that just fills every crack and crevice on the planet. And it fills everything. And it's good and it's true and it's loving. And so when you fear glory, don't just think a lightning flash. Think of all these 
things that, that belong to God and only God alone. It's the only word it's used for him and him alone in this sense. And he says, this glory is coming upon you. And they're going, um, I'm not seeing it. But he says, it's so sure that Isaiah speaks of it as if it had already happened. It is so sure, the promise, that it has already happened. And not only is it happening in Israel, in verse 3 he says, even it's so attractive, even the nations are getting attracted to it. It's almost a blinding light, but it's so blinding and so attractive that the nations are even coming to Israel themselves. And then you go to verse 4, and it's easy to gloss over verse 4, kind of jump over it because it gets lost in all these descriptions. But I, in my opinion, verse 4 is the hinge verse. Verse 4 is the one that encapsulates. It's got the command in it, and it's also got the, it's, it's very significant theologically. It's full of theology. And he says, lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried in their nurses' arms. He says, get up and look. It's happening before your eyes. You just need to see it. You need to be able to see what's going on here. Get up and look around. And I, I, I kind of feel like this is, we kind of feel like the American church has sort of fallen on hard times in, in recent years. And I think part of it is that we, and you can look at the landscape, it's, it's, it's full of angry and cynical people. And I think part of the problem is, is us, that we're not looking up around. We're seeing all kinds of enemies and perceived enemies and real enemies. We're seeing all these things. But we have Isaiah saying, lift up and look around you. The kingdom is breaking in all over you. It's everywhere. It's breaking in, looking in. And he says, look at this. This is what, this is what it, it's going to be like. And it's working. It's working now. God is breaking in. He, uh, he, the, the people are just looking around, saying, just lamenting, saying, we think about what could have been and what actually is, and it's depressing, and all that is is moving that object between us and the light. But the kingdom is breaking in, and he says, lift up and look up, open your eyes and look around you. And then in the last verses, the five through nine, this is really what we're going to cover, is just this great description of what God is doing of what God is doing. He is seeing the radiant, the light is all starting up. And this is just, these promises are just the starting point of what God is going to do in the future. And he says, this is all the things that are happening, that they will be, there will be a great reversal. He says at the very beginning, he says, see, then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and rejoice. In other words, he's saying, smile. And don't just smile, put on a big smile. Because this is what's happening. This is what's coming to them. This is what's going to be there. And he turns everything upside down, that, that they were strangers living in the shadows in other countries. And God's saying, now the other countries are going to be coming to you. They are coming to you. There's just a total inversion of the geopolitical scene here that's coming in, that the nations will be coming to you instead of the other way around. Before, armies would just come to Israel and they either conquer them or just pass through them when they're on to more important wars, and they would just exploit Israel. And God's saying, now that's going to be reversed. The people are going to come to you. And he says, and uh, uh, he goes on to say, they'll be bringing, uh, uh, verse 6, a multitude of camels, camels, sheep, 
gold, frankincense that shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. The flocks of Keter will be gathered around you. Rams, they will bring all this stuff. Look, and they look, look, he says, look at the distance. Look, there's something coming up like a cloud. It's like doves, you know, making roost in your windows, he says. And if you've ever been to downtown Portland, you know what that looks like. And all these pigeons are everywhere. Well, he said, that's what it's going to be like. People coming in droves. And then he says, from the coastlands, the ships will come and bring your children from far away. It's silver and gold for the name of the Lord and for the Holy One of Israel. They will be glorified to you. Now, no one in Israel at this time could even remember that happening. As far as they're concerned, the only, time they, the only place that, their, that wealth went from Jerusalem was out. It went to other kings. It went to other tributes, other countries, other nations. Well, now God is saying, no, now it's going to be reversed. They're going to be bringing tribute to you. They're going to be bringing the gifts to you. And when, when, when that happens, when people bring their wealth to something and give their wealth to something, that means something significantly has happened to them. I mean, you get people to give money away, and you know something big is happening to them, right? Because that just doesn't happen all the time. And when the kings are coming, they're giving these tributes and gold, and, and they're going to flock to them. And, and he said, that's where, the, that's where the wealth is going. And not only that, he said, even a, bigger, even a bigger miracle, a bigger surprise here, he says, they, in verse 7, they shall be acceptable on my altar. Just a little line there that's full of theology, full of promise. That for Israel, he's saying to Israel, you're not going to become the tyrants. You're not going to become the oppressors. When all these nations come to you, they will be co-worshippers. They will be joint worshipers with you of Yahweh, and it will be acceptable to me. They're not coming so that you can oppress them and take advantage of them and exploit them. They're coming as co-worshippers to Yahweh. And God says, it's going to be acceptable. And really, he's just saying, going on, fulfilling that promise that he made to Abraham. He said he's going to call his family, and out of that family, all the nations will be blessed. And God is just saying, this is what's going to happen. They're going to come to praise. They're going to be co-worshippers. And then that verse 9, he says they will come from all over, from the farthest coastlands, they will come from all over. And he says they will bring silver and gold, but they will also bring your children. And I struggled with that. I'm thinking, well, who's, how are they bringing your children from Tarshish? And I thought, well, it could be that they're bringing maybe children who were taken away and slaves in battle, which is very, very possible. And it could be, it could be that. But I'm also thinking, I wonder if this is just another way of saying that this is going to be one big family reunion. And these people that are coming from far away are bringing children who are also your children, your brothers and your sisters. They will be co-worshippers of Yahweh, the true God, here in one place. This is going to be like this big surprise party for a family reunion. This is what I think he's saying, that it's this big surprise. But they're looking around going, okay, to be fair, this is a great promise. This is a great message of God's power and God's love and God's mercy. But it's not exactly apparent. We're not really seeing it. And that's fair. That's fair. But we're going to move on. What does the New Testament say about this passage? 
Well, there's a couple of places that I want to mention here. First is in Matthew. And you notice maybe the gifts were frankincense and gold. And uh, we have the story, Matthew's the only one that records this story, of the, the visit of the Magi. He says, after the wise men had listened to the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when they were in the east and went ahead of them, and it finally stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The wise men went to the house, and there they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures, and they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you've been around a while, you've heard me say this before, that Matthew is retelling the story of Israel in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. He is their Messiah. He is their king. He is the embodiment of all of Israel. And so what Matthew is saying about, about Jesus, he's, he's telling that this is the story of Israel that we've heard all along. And just as a note, if you're doing your own Bible study and you're reading something and a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament scripture, remember parchment was very expensive, so they didn't have a lot of space to write on. Usually your Bible will have a note that says where they found this in the Old Testament. Go back and read the whole section. Go back and read the whole paragraph because that's what the author's getting at. Not just that one line. He's getting, he wants you to think of the whole section. So when the recipients read this and they see gold and frankincense and the people who know, the, the, these Jews who know the Old Testament so well, they would immediately go to Isaiah chapter 60. And they would realize that what Matthew was saying is that Matthew is not replacing the prophecy of Isaiah 60. He's fulfilling it. He's saying what we see in this birth of this Christ, this is what happened back there. This is what God was talking about in Isaiah 60, and now it's happening right now. And these magi are coming to give their tribute, just like, the, just like Isaiah said. These kings have come and crossed the threshold into Israel and are giving tribute to the king of the Jews. Just like Isaiah said. In other words, this is like his coronation. They are recognizing this as the king, and they are coming from the nations to Israel, just like Isaiah said. A different way, totally surprising, astonishing way, but they are coming to Jerusalem to pay tribute to the king. And if you read carefully in Matthew's, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, you will notice that Matthew refers to Herod as King Herod or Herod the king in those first verses until the Magi come. After the Magi give their tribute, he's then just Herod. It's like Matthew is dethroning King Herod. And so you have an aliens and you have the king of the Jews hearing the same message and it's, the, and it's the, the foreigners who go in faith to Bethlehem to see the Christ child. Not the insider. Not Herod. This is the guy that built the big temple. This is the guy who claims to be the king of the Jews. And he doesn't hear it. They both hear the word of God from Micah. And one follows in faith and one doesn't. And it's the insider who doesn't. That should serve as a warning for us that we may think we're on the inside and we know everything and we got it all wired. But sometimes it's the outsiders who have to say, no, this is something else. 
we still are called by faith to go to the Christ child. He is called the king. And I love this. This is like, this is just this great surprise that this, uh, this, this King Herod has, has rejected the Christ child. And then he commits this inexpressible uh, crime of killing all, the, all the, the young children just in case he might be killing the king of the Jews. And I'm really wondering, I put these two together, we have this inexpressible incarnation of love counteract with this inexpressible crime of killing children. And I just wonder, is that how things work? That when there's this inexpressible, uh, inexpressible incarnation, of, incarnation of love, does that automatically provoke the enemy for an inexpressible, unexpressible commitment of a crime like that? And I wonder when Jesus talks about us being facing persecution, if that's really what's going on. That when we express love, it automatically kind of provokes this crime from the enemy. I just wonder if those two kind of go together. Just a, just a thought. The other place that I want to mention, the other, the other gospel writer who brings up this theme is John. But John, for John, for Matthew, Jesus is the king, the king of Israel. For John... Jesus is the embodiment of all humanity. Pilate says some really profound things without realizing that he's doing it. And when he presents Jesus to the crowds, he goes, Behold the man. Behold the Adam. Behold the second Adam. And in John's book, Jesus is the embodiment, the representative of all humanity. And in John's book, he picks up the theme of light. That this light that's going to rise on Israel, this light that's going to, this, this glory that's going to shine on Jerusalem, G John is identifying that same light as Jesus himself. He says in the first chapter, uh, in him was life and the light was the, life was the light to all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Remember, glory only applies to God. And he's saying that this light has come to Jerusalem that, that Isaiah talked about is now in Jesus Christ. And don't forget John 8 and 9 where Jesus clearly says, I am the light. That light you read about in Isaiah, it's me. I'm here. It's all in the person. It's all him. He embodies grace and truth and beauty and mercy. We too long to see this. Here in the 21st century. We too want to see this. So what does this poem, this vision have for us? What does it mean for us? What does it do to us? First of all, we too know darkness. When we are in the darkness, for whatever reason, for whatever eclipse it happens to be, it makes us feel small and defenseless and helpless. I don't care how smart you are, how big you are, how strong you are. That when you're in the dark, you feel helpless. And we know darkness. We know darkness. And that dream and vision that Isaiah points to is helpful, but we're having trouble seeing it because this, they were in the middle of an eclipse. And the people that first heard Isaiah's vision, they too, they lived just like we did, just like we do. They experienced life just like we do. 
Life chewed on them just like it chews on us. We know what darkness feels like. Most of us know what darkness feels like. Some of us more deeper than others. And yet, the vision still calls us. The vision still calls us. This is the promises that is the starting point. The vision is still begging us to perceive it and participate in it. To perceive God's glorious work and participate in it. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that, that we hunger, and because we hunger, that automatically implies that food exists. He says we are thirsty, and when we get thirsty, that automatically points to water that exists. And he, he applies that to the spiritual needs, too. We have this longing for peace and healing and wholeness inside, and that in and of itself should point that this, is, this exists that we have this longing for a reason because it does exist. Peace and healing and wholeness does exist and the vision still calls to us. And we follow the example of the Magi who hears the word and believes it and goes to the Christ child out of faith. The vision still calls us. We go to meet Christ. And so we lift up our lives and look around. The kingdom of God is breaking in. It's surely, it's not at its culmination yet. We live in that already not yet stage where the kingdom of God is breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. But we wait and hope for the culmination, for the climax of that. But it is breaking in. The Holy One is active. The Holy One of Israel is working among us. We just need to lift up our eyes and look around us. And I don't know what that looks like to you. You might want to spend some time thinking about this. What does it look like when the, the kingdom of God breaks into my life? It could be just a, a random guest at your door. It, it could be, uh, you know, friends who drop off dinner at your house in the afternoon because your wife broke her wrist. And I speak to that firsthand. It could be the encounter with a stranger. It could be a gentle touch or just a kind word. It could be some light that suddenly breaks in on you for some reason. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, I didn't ask permission to use this. So I'll just use them anonymously. But um, that he was talking about being on a bus in, in Edinburgh and just this grace of God just washing over him all at once. If something happens where the glory of God rises upon us, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Have you experienced it? Does it just wash over you? Uh, does, is, it, is it a gradual dawning of truth? Is it a bright revelation that comes to you? We've all had experiences like that. Just remember that. Think about that. It could just come out of nowhere. It could be the squeal of a newborn baby. It could be that moment when you're gazing at your wife and you realize, this is the love of my life. It could be moments like that, a bright revelation or a slow dawning, something that, that attracts your attention, and it causes you to look up, lift your eyes and look around and see God's kingdom breaking in all over, all around us. No, it hasn't reached its culmination. We will look at that next week, by the way. It hasn't reached that, but it's breaking around us, lifting around us. And then the last thing, we each have a gift to bring. Uh, I've got a treat for you here in a minute. Um, we're going to listen to a little, uh, a little tune here. Um, 
one summer, I was working at some company, and, uh, and uh, I had a roommate. We worked for the same group, and uh, we, spent, we lived together in the same house, same room, um, one summer. And his name was Andy Delahite, and he was a guitar player, a jazz guitar player. He loved jazz, and Andy introduced me to jazz. Uh, he and his friend Doug would play around the Dallas-Fort Worth area pretty much on weekends, and, um, one, and then he, he, he brought us and me and some other friends to this place in Dallas called, the, it's called Strictly Taboo, and it's a jazz club. And uh, we would go there, and I'm in my early 20s, we would go there and, and um, sit there listening to jazz, drinking white Russians, thinking we were really cool, you know. <laughs> we were really cool. Well, it did stick, though. His love for jazz did stick. And, um, and so I even have a channel on my, on my Pandora, and there's one, my, one group I really like called Dave Brubeck, the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And uh, it's a great tune, and I'm going to play it for you, but we need to hear the story behind it. Dave Brubeck uh, was getting ready to record a session in New York. He lives in Connecticut. His wife was pregnant with their sixth child, and uh, it was getting close to the birth. Well, about the time of the recording session, she goes into labor. So he goes to the hospital, he's with her at the hospital, and they give birth to their sixth son, Matt, sixth, sixth son Matthew Charles. And uh, so he finally comes down to New York, meets his other band members. Uh, so they have a saxophone player, a drum player, and a bass player, uh, also kings of jazz at the time. This is 1961. And uh, he was telling them about it and announced the birth of his, of his son, Matthew Charles, and began to play on the piano these light keys kind of announcing the birth of his son. And the other, Jay Morello, uh, Paul Desmond, and I think the other guy is Eugene Wright, who played, uh, who played the bass, uh, they started joining in. And they recorded the session right then and there. You would think it was just meticulously composed, but it was all spur of the moment. And when they played the tune back to his wife, Eola, for their son. It's called the Matthew Charles uh, Hallelujah because that was the name of the son. And they played it back to her and she said, it's like each band member brought a gift to the baby. And so I thought we would listen to that and then we'll close with a few comments here. If I can get it going here. Do I need to start it, Karen, or? Did I do something wrong? There we go.
fun when you know the story. I think we can learn a lot from them, and we can learn a lot from the, the, um, the Magi. And uh, that is, we all have a gift to bring. And uh, one thing we learn about this magnanimous gifts in Isaiah and then the magnanimous gifts of the Magi to bring to the child. And in this, this quartet, you just have these men who are bringing their best as a gift for the child. And uh, that's, I think, a response to what God is doing with the kingdom breaking in as we bring our magnanimous gift, we bring our best, our best to the child. And what's so wonderful about this is um, it's, it comes together to do something really beautiful and really attractive that attracts the nations. And I have thought for a really long time that uh, the Christian life is 90% jazz, where uh, we bring our, our gifts. And we have these parameters, we have the key that we play in, but basically it's ad lib. It's a improv improvisation. And we bring this to, we bring our best gifts to this. We bring it together. It's not something you do solo. We bring it together and you have this incredible composition of beauty and grace. And it's attractive. It's attractive to the nations. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't a threat. This is an invitation to joy. And that's what happens when we bring our gifts together for the child, for the Christ child, for the king. Together, we create this beautiful thing that's attractive, attractive to the nations. And it woos people into the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to ask the worship team if you guys come on back up.